Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Right now, I have one of my very favorite people coming on the program, and that of course is Strike Up the Band, Dr. History. Good morning, sir. How are you? Doing great. You know, it, this time of year is a fun time, uh, harvest time. I see the trucks going down the road oh, with wow. sugar beets in them now, yeah. you know, and yeah. uh, just kind of a fall is in the air, football and all that. So You know, football is in full swing. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, you haven't told me your picks uh, of the top two teams to go to the Super Bowl, so I'm listening. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Zeb. <laughs> too early. I don't know. You know, it is too early because yeah. there's going to be a lot of changes and transitions as to what happens and who happens. Right. But you got to feel sorry for the Oakland Raiders after how they were yeah. treated by that Antonio Brown. That was disgusting. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm watching more college football right now. I love college. Love football. college football. So, what have you got for us today? Well, today I'm going to talk about a guy by the name of John Butterfield. Now I'm going to tell you folks right now, if you will write down this date, November nineteenth, two thousand thirteen. Six years ago, I told the story about the fastest stage run in history, and that was done by John Butterfield. Now, I'll I'll mention that again at the end of the story, but uh, John Butterfield is the one that did that, and we're going to talk about how he got started at this point. So so just picture this. Here's John W. Butterfield. He was really excited about an upcoming event in Tipton, Missouri. He had planned to carry the canvas mailbags personally from the late-arriving St. Louis train and then throw them into the waiting stagecoach, and then within moments, the mailbags would be galloping across the country all the way to San Francisco, 2,795 miles. Now, this was the first endeavor of its kind, first time to do this. And with that act, he would open the world's longest transcontinental mail line. Now, did he go along? Yeah, he, he rode all two thousand. Well, let's see. Uh, I, he was in part of this, I believe. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was on this one. Wow. So, uh, transcontinental mail line. But the train conductor didn't wait for fifty-six-year-old, as they called him, quote, old John, as he was kind of affectionately known. Both of us would really be happy if, the, <laughs> at that age, they'd call us old. Old, yeah. yeah. But already the bags had been kind of just thrown onto the stage. So here he was. And that's how it started, September 16th, 1858. John Butterfield himself climbed aboard the first westbound stage, driven by his son, John Butterfield Jr. So with a Yahoo and here we go, the first two Overland Mail Company stages set out from opposite ends of the line, the eastbound from San Francisco a day earlier. So almost kind of like the Pony Express. You know, each uh, east and west heading 
towards each other. What was the route out of California? We'll, we'll get that. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll show you that as we go along, because okay. it is different than the Pony Express. So it was in the mid-19th century when land and opportunity in California was calling, and Americans answered the call. Now, the only way to send and receive mail coast to coast was by sea, by the ocean. Oh, my. So mail sent down either coast to Panama was then carted across this boggy, uh, mosquito-infested place uh, to get to the other side. Uh, and then uh, sometimes taking two to four weeks just getting across okay, Panama. You sent a letter from New York. Right. And it had to go all the way around the Cape of, what's that called? Uh, uh, Cape uh, of Good Hope, Cape yeah. Horn, Cape whatever. Horn, Cape Horn, yeah, and then come up on the west coast. Well, no, sometimes it did, but other times they would stop at Panama. The ship would uh, offload the mail, and then it would go across the isthmus by mule or whatever, and pick up a ship heading uh, north up to San Francisco. Ooh. And that's what some of the miners did, too, you know, the gold miners, 49ers. Wow. They would uh, go down to Panama, hike across, catch a ship north up to San Francisco to the gold field. So that was the two ways they could do that, you know. I never thought about that. But uh, anyway, uh, so at that point, they were loaded they onto... They didn't call a, FedEx or anything. They did not. <laughs> but they loaded onto a steamer, mail, parcels, and people continued on to their destinations up north. And a trip of four months was not unusual for a letter or for people. Well, it's not good enough. People complained, and surprisingly, Congress took notice, and on March 3rd, 1857, authorized Postmaster General and former Tennessee Governor Aaron Brown to contract for mail service from Missouri to California. Mm. Now, the U.S. Postal Service advertised for bids, and they had some requirements. And here's what it was. Be- number one, begin operation within one year. So whoever's going to do this got to get it all set up within one year. Number two, use the selected, quote, all-weather, no-mountain southern road. So it could not go across uh, the mountains. So basically the all-weather means they went a south route like through uh, Arizona, et cetera? Right. Oh. Number three, they had to create a spur line that split off going to Memphis, Tennessee, Cost number four cost no more than six hundred thousand dollars per year. Number five provide a semi weekly service. Number six deliver the mail on each trip within twenty five days. Twenty five days, which was a heck of a lot shorter than four months. Oh my! So, well, John Butterfield, who happened to be a friend to the incoming president John Buchanan, he won the bid. He and his associates uh, signed a six-year contract on September 16, 1857, and the stage was set for the first efficient transcontinental mail service. Wow. Now, let's talk about John a little bit. Yeah. He was born in Bern, New York, November 18, 1801. Uh, John Warren Butterfield drove his first stagecoach when he was just eight, uh, 19 years old, and that was in Albany, New York, and then in Utica, New York, where... Actually, he was elected mayor in 1856, so he was an active guy, Yeah. Um, but he was heavily involved in mail and passenger lines in upstate New York, and he organized the Butterfield, Wasson and Company in 1849. Now, the next year, he merged his business with Wells and Company and Livingston, Fargo and Company. Oh, so he was kind of connected to yeah, Wells Fargo. Right. So it formed the Wells and Fargo Company and also the American Express Company. So this is how things kind Don't of... Don't leave home without it. Yeah, they were kind of... <laughs> 
you know, coming together here a little bit. So Butterfield, who had a very strong work ethic, uh, made him the right man to be president of the Overland Mail Company. And they uh, shortened that to OMC. So when I say OMC, that means the Overland Mail Company. Okay. Now, the two starting points, St. Louis and Memphis, would converge. Here's the direction, Zeb. Converge at Fort Smith, Arkansas. The route would then run through Indian Territory, which is present-day Oklahoma, over the plains of Texas to Franklin, which is near El Paso, Mm -hmm. across the New Mexico Territory, uh, which Arizona Territory was not created at that time, but that's where it was, to Tucson, and then enter California at Fort Yuma on its way to Los Angeles. They still had a lot of Indian problems then. Yeah. Yeah, and then north to the western terminal at San Francisco. So kind of like a big, huge loop, Ooh, you know. Kind of uh, almost south, a horseshoe. Yes, so, uh, south and yeah. then to north. So, you know, uh, as with typical, you know, there were people that complained about this, and the northerners objected, and the newspaper, the Sacramento Union, uh, based in the capital city, uh, missed by the southern road, called this a, quote, foul wrong or, quote, an outrage upon the majority of people of the state and a Panama route by land. Anyway, they just didn't have anything good. They conde- The New York Press said this. It says, one of the greatest swindles ever perpetuated, perpetuated, <laughs> perpetuated <laughs> upon the country by slaveholders. Let me ask you this, though. When they got to San Francisco... Okay. Mm-hmm. Did they have other sources to take the mail and refer it to the destination points after that? Well, at that point, yes, they were distributed by local uh, routes, okay. you know, that went by horse buggy or I whatever. See. Yeah. But, uh, you know, these opinions were noted but disregarded, and the U.S. Postal Service just pushed on, even though, uh, again, like a lot of things, people are not happy with it. Well, so here's what, within one year, this is what Butterfield accomplished. He bought 1,200 horses and 600 mules, each branded with the OM, Overland Mail, uh, and then he distributed these 1,200 horses, 600 mules, across this whole route. He ordered 250 wagons. He was able to buy several thousand tons of hay and grain and, again, distribute that throughout the route. He built 200 way stations about every around 20 miles apart. He dug 100 wells. He surveyed 2,800 miles and actually graded river fording sites. He opened new roads or improved old ones. He hired a 1,000 men as surveyors, conductors, drivers, blacksmiths, whatever was needed. Holy smokes. He created the run schedule. Now, there's a lot to do right there, Zeb. I mean, just the schedule of, you know, how quick are you going to get from this station to this station to this station and get to San Francisco. So roughly from right where we're sitting to Burley would be one run on one set of horses. About 20 miles. Yeah, about 20 miles. Yeah, yeah. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.
So, but his hand, Butterfield's hand, was seen through the company, and here's what he said, quote, remember, boys, nothing on God's earth should stop the United States mail. There you go. There it goes. And so letters. Except the dog. <laughs> yeah. And so letters and packages. Now, this is kind of interesting, Zeb. Never payroll or valuables. No gold, no, like Wells Fargo. Just okay. letters? Yeah, just packages and letters. Wow. And they were delivered in a timely fashion. By the outbreak of the Civil War, the OMC stagecoaches were delivering more mail at 10 cents per half ounce. Okay, that's $3.12 today for a half ounce letter to and from the West Coast uh, than all the ships combined going around South America. Really? So they were doing a good business. Yeah. Well... Uh, early on, Butterfield and his associates decided the deliveries would be more profitable if they took passengers as well. You know, that's a logical thing. Slowed them down, though. Yeah, it probably did. But travel was pretty expensive. Okay, so for a person, 10 cents a mile or one way for $150, $3,116 today. Are you kidding? So three over $3,000 if you're going to ride from east to west or west to east. Now... They had uh, these heavy Concord stagecoaches built in Concord, New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. They ran in the eastern section of the route, and they proved to be pretty good for the more established roads. But crossing the desert required these lighter uh, celebrity coaches built by Abbott Downing Company in New York. These were a little sturdier, stronger. I have a question. Okay. How did they, back in those days, other than just the uh, the trails and the wagon ruts, how did they make the roads? I have no idea. I, I mean, I'm, you know, they had those. Uh, did you ever think about that? They had those slip scrapers that you, yeah. you that I've seen used. We're to do a program on that. Yeah, because those slip scrapers would pull dirt, and then you dump it, pull, yeah. dump behind a horse. Okay. Pardon me. Now, now the passengers on both coaches sat with their knees either dovetailed. Or in the back of the people in front of them, okay, so you're squashed in there pretty tight. Sounds really comfy. So imagine 25 days sitting like that. No, ain't going to happen. <laughs> oh. How long did they go during the day? All day, 24-7. So they were going. I'm riding years. on top, boy. <laughs> There's a guy by the name of Raphael Pompelli. Okay, I know him well. He traveled west to Tucson, yes. and here's what he said about his ride: "Quote, and there being room inside for only ten of the twelve legs, each side of the coach was graced by a foot now dangling near the wheel, now trying in vain to find a place of support, and usually heavy mail in the boot." by weighing down the rear, kept those of us who were on the front seat constantly bent forward. <laughs> Not oh, a pleasant ride. Uh. So Butterfield's Grand Adventure changed travel. It was known uh, prior to 1858. So, you know, I can't imagine. So but, they, they go 20 miles, and then they had a rest. Well, I'm going to talk uh, about that. Oh. Okay, so for the first time, passengers rode 24-7. Teams changed every 15 to 25 miles. So, like we said, about 20 miles apart. Now, before this, the passengers, as well as the coach and horses, stopped for the night, uh, often camping along the road. So, in the beginning, they did stop at night, okay, and let the people sleep on the ground or How whatever. Could, yeah, I'd gladly sleep on the ground. Oh, yeah, have a rest. Now, the home stations were built to accommodate hungry passengers. They would find food there for a dollar. Meals consisted of bacon, beans, onions, coffee, and meat. The stop lasted no more than 45 minutes. Really? 
Fresh drivers took the reins there. Passengers at way stations where only the team was changed were asked to, quote, wash their faces quickly and were allowed five minutes for a much-needed stretch. Or whatever. Butterfield's mail traveled overland <laughs> as opposed to oversea in fewer than 25 days. So, fact is, the first run east to west was accomplished in 23 days, 23 hours. Wow. Now, that's pretty fast. Never in the history of North America or the world had packages and passengers traveled so far, so quickly, and without any major incidences. And despite, you know, there's got to be bad weather. And the train is going to be off and on. Indian attacks, but everyone arrived safe and sound. And then all of them had to go to an orthopedic surgeon. To get their back. A good chiropractor would have helped them. Yes, you know one? I do. <laughs> well, the route became such a reliable service that England, Great Britain, sent official mail headed for Canada by way of Butterfield's OMC. So the company never hauled what we call express shipments, you know, valuables like payroll, gold, silver, and such. That was left up to Wells Fargo. Uh, of course, we've had told a lot of stories about, you know, the yeah. the uh, Wells Fargo the robberies and one thing or another. But, you know, as, as successful as the enterprise was, the end of OMC came uh, really too quickly. There were three major events, events that came to end the longest mail route. First, there was dissension in the company. Uh-oh. It pushed Butterfield out as president in 1860. Why didn't they like the guy? I I don't know. It's just, it's believed that other board members wanted to run Express, and he did not. In other words, they wanted to run gold, valuables and stuff. Like Wells Fargo. Right. But Butterfield did not want to do that. Uh, Butterfield was a natural leader, and so with his removal, the morale kind of sagged. I mean, it was, yeah. you can imagine that he was a good leader and must have been a good boss because the, the people that worked for him... Uh, liked him and so when he left uh, people kind of felt bad about that. you know really that's an interesting story in itself i mean here's the guy that created all this and then he gets booted out right yeah wow so second thing a recently promoted promoted lieutenant george bascom was sent to oversee indian relations in the newly formed provisional arizona territory in february of 1861 he boxed a deal with cochise killing the apache leader's brother oh boy this caused cochise uh to rampage against anyone crossing his territory now before this previously cochise allowed people to pass through and even had a trading agreement with the way station manager at apache pass near present-day Bowie, arizona oh no kidding so Cochise was a friend. He was good, and yeah. uh, he worked with Butterfield. Well, but how this, did this guy kill his brother? Well, uh, the Army. This Lieutenant George oh. Bascom, they uh, went after him, I and see. so, you know, bad deal. Yeah. Now, the third thing that really kind of was the death blow proved to be the Civil War. In March of 1861, the Confederates shut down the route through Texas, which t- took eight days to go across. So it cut the line in half. So mail and passengers were, were stopped at the uh, Indian Territory, Texas line. They couldn't go any farther through there. And But there's some things that we take for granted today, but Butterfield is responsible for several firsts, including this. Created, number one, created stage stations, today's rest areas, or truck stops. Okay? Really? Never thought of that. No. Uh, number two, American history of El Paso originated with the Overland Mail. 
El Paso may never have come to be had it not been for him. Really? Los Angeles grew once it was connected with the world. Uh, obviously, you're getting people going back and forth. The longest stagecoach line in the world under one management. Number five, the first truly transcontinental traffic line on the continent, you know, before the railroad. Yeah. Uh, strict adherence to schedule for the entire period. So he had a, a really strict schedule for these drivers and passengers, and that was good. And uh, number seven, drivers assigned to small sections of the route while mail and passengers went through. So this is kind of what Wells Fargo did, too. You know, he had drivers over certain sections, but the route or the passengers, the mail or whatever would go uh, on through. And then the other thing he had was amazing. He had an amazing safety record. They didn't lose people like, like say, the Wells Fargo, who had people killed and drivers killed. Yeah. You know? But anyway, John W. Butterfield changed the world back then and left quite a legacy. So today's rest areas on the interstates are a direct result of old John's creative thinking. Wow. Now, later, the Harvey houses, uh, and I had to look this up, the Harvey house is a chain of restaurants, hotels, and hospitality industry alongside railroads in the western United States. Hmm. So he, he that's kind of, he sort of established those two, these way, uh, places for people to stop and rest. Right, right. But the trains undoubtedly influenced by Butterfield, they provided the same service for the same reasons as did the Overland, but quite common to us today, but, you know, new to pre-Civil War thinking was operating on a regular schedule with coordinated clock management, and not until the OMC insisted on uniform hours from coast to coast did people consider the need for time zones. Now, think about that. They're going from, what, like, uh, over, like, what would be three time well, zones? it'd be the central to the uh, mountain to the Pacific time right. zone. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, in 1869, when train travel stretched across America, butter concept of regular schedules and reliable times was quickly embraced, but he left a legacy that we still enjoy today. So, again, folks, write this down. Go back to my webpage, dr-history.com, November 19th, 2013. The story is called The Fastest Stage Run in History, and that's when Butterfield had, in order to keep his uh, contract, went from Oakland, California, to Atchison, Kansas, in 12 days and two hours. Wow. He riding the whole way. And uh, so that's a pretty interesting story right there. Just go back and listen to that uh, regarding Butterfield. That was really interesting. And I'll, I'll just sum it up by saying this. We always think of, when you think of stage travel, as Wells Fargo. Right, and exactly. we don't really remember Butterfield. Right. Yeah. And there was a lot of, you know, offbeat, yeah. you know, that went maybe 50 miles or 100 miles Absolutely. all across the country. That was a great story. I, I great found it story. pretty interesting. And by the way, for those of you in the audience, real quick, I understand that Dr. History is going to imitate exactly what it was like on that ride for 2,500 miles and sit in that position for 25, 25 days. days. There yes, you yes. go. Thanks. I will need a chiropractor. <laughs> Have a good day. Thank you, Zach. God bless you. Dr. History, what a great job that was on that story about the Butterfield stage.